Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like, was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he saw by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to, the seven, to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy about, again, about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And Jeff, for chapter 11. Of course. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, which is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if any would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city <clears throat> that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And the enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raised, but your wrath came, the time for the dead to, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Brilliant. Jeff, thanks so much for reading the passage first. Uh, do you have the handout open uh, that will help you to follow along and also the Bible passage open in front of you? Uh, one of the, um, the, the outcomes, I guess, of working in full-time paid ministry is that you will have a number of well-meaning relatives who are very keen to tell you how to do your job. I remember having a conversation with an uncle of mine uh, who was a very successful businessman. And it was at the point when I was just about to leave the corporate world and to go into full-time paid ministry. And this is what he said to me. He said, Joel, you know, the most effective way to evangelize is to well, be successful and draw other people, people in for Christ. And essentially what he's saying, well, be like the world, but be better at it. And perhaps because he was a very successful individual in the workplace, I can understand why he was saying that. Uh, but at the heart of, heart of things, I do want to ask the question, like, what does the Bible actually say about that question? And it's a really important question, right? I mean, it comes to the core of our ministry here at Covent Garden Talks. Uh, it hits home about when you think about reaching out to people that you work with or that you interact with, your friends and family. Um, how do you reach out? To the nations? How do you reach out to your workplace? Uh, should Rachel and myself be trying to help you to be better workers? Uh, the unfortunate fact is that we will be horrible at it. Uh, maybe Rachel will be better than me, uh, but definitely not, not myself. So let me ask, what is the strategy to win over your workplace? Uh, that co-worker of yours, that assistant, your line manager, your CEO, or your team member? Or perhaps another angle on the same question um, is, is this. I mean, you, we, you know that in Revelation, I've been suggesting that it, it's giving us a pair of heaven's glasses to, to see the world. And a couple of weeks ago, um, the view from heaven on this world is that Christians, well, we are like an army, an army prepared for war. And so the question that was raised in chapter 7 of Revelation was, how do we fight? What is our duty as soldiers? Likewise, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at home, how does the army fight? Well, today we've come to Revelation chapter 10 and 11, and we are almost at the midway point of the book. And I thought that it would be a good idea to, to do a bit of recap of what we've seen so far. And if you remember coming to the very first talk on the overview of Revelation, uh, we, we saw that Revelation, well, it's not an easy book to understand. But two tips to help us. Firstly, to remember that John, the author, he's a Jewish author. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see references to the Old Testament. But the next thing, the more important thing to remember is that John, well, he is the author. Uh, that is to say, he is writing a united story 
his vision is a connected story and information that he provides at the beginning, well, it helps us to understand what comes up later. And we'll see how this is at play in our passage today. And because this is a united story, there are united, there's plot lines that are running through his vision. And one of the key plots that we've been seeing so far in chapters 1 to 11 is the scroll. Uh, remember, we said the scroll is a reference to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, it's this scroll which signifies God's plan for the end of time. And this scroll is sealed to the very end, and it's only open when the end arrives. Uh, chapters 4 and 5, there was great anticipation about the opening of the scroll. Only the lamb who was slain is worthy to open the scroll. Chapter 6, we saw the seals open up one by one. But just before the seventh seal was open, between the sixth and the seventh seal, well, there's a great pause. You remember angels holding back the judgment, preventing more judgment to come on the earth. And right in between the sixth and the seventh seal, we saw chapter seven. Now we saw a census been taken, an army being assembled. But the funny thing that we found out about the army as well was that we saw the army assembled, but the next scene in chapter 7 was a victory parade. And what happens in the middle? Um, how does the army fight? Well, the, the seals then gave way to trumpets, and uh, you heard uh, Andrew last week telling us about what the trumpets were about. They announced and prepared us for the contents of the scroll. There were great judgments falling on the earth, and the world suffering great pain. But what happened? Look at chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons or idols of gold or silver or bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, their sexual morality and their thefts. You see the point, judgment alone that does not cause the nations to repent. And so that also sets up the question today, how will the nations repent? And so my suggestion is understanding how the army fights will help us to see how the nations repent. And the answer? Well, the answer is the scroll. Uh, the answer is all in the scroll. And see that in chapter 10, as John, he is commissioned to reveal the contents of the scroll. Well, if you're following down the handout, we are in our first section, uh, setting the scene. John, he has been commissioned to reveal the contents of the scroll. Look to chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the, like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire, and he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left on the foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. 
And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, and that there will be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Here we see a great scene of a mighty angel well, he's bearing divine characteristics. And I think it really adds to the significance of what's happening here. Uh, he has a rainbow around his head. And the last time you saw a rainbow, it was around God's throne. His face was shining like a sun. Uh, like Jesus, his face was also shining like a sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. His voice like a lion roaring. And when he calls out, uh, his voice calls out seven thunders. But it's a surprise in verse 4. Do you notice? The voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And and why? I guess the question, why uh, is John called not to write it down? And I think the point is this, that, well, more judgment does not cause the nations to repent. The trumpets, the thunders as pictures of greater judgment. But we know from chapter 9 that judgment doesn't cause people to repent. But rather, there will be no more delay. Uh, It's time to reveal the contents of the scroll. Well, don't be thrown off by the fact that the scroll is called a little scroll. Um, I want to suggest it's the same scroll that we saw in chapter 5. And both words, scroll and little scroll, uh, they're used synonymously. Um, there in verse 8 to 9, both using the same word to refer to the different word to refer to the same thing. Uh, but why, why does John describe the scroll as little? And I think it's because of what happens next. Uh, John, he is called to, to eat the scroll. And look at verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told that you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Uh, John, he he eats the scroll. It's sweet. I think sweet because it's the message. Sweet because it's the word of God. It's like honey. But as he digests the scroll, it's, it's bitter in his stomach because the experience of the scroll, well, it's uncomfortable. Uh, It's painful. And there's suffering involved. See, the, the content of the scroll is both sweet and bitter at the same time. And as John, as he digests the scroll, whatever he says next, whatever comes out of his mouth, well, it reveals the contents of the scroll. And what is being revealed uh, is the strategy to win the nations. It is the duty of the army. And if you're following the handout, we are on our first point. But the duty is... Firstly, to witness. I look again to chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, 
Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I'll grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Well, these verses are quite tricky verses. I mean, who... Does the temple refer to who is outside the temple, who's the holy city, and who are the two witnesses? Well, some suggest that there are different groups of people. Uh, the temple refers to those in heaven, and those in the holy city or the altar court are those on the earth. Uh, personally, that might be right, but personally, I think it refers to the same group of people uh, with different perspectives. Uh, they are sealed in one sense in the temple because they are protected, and they are sealed and they are measured away. But in another sense, they are trampled. They will be, uh, they will suffer. And notice the the holy city and the two witnesses, they refer to the same group of people. Uh, If you multiply 42 months by 30, I think you get the same number there, 1,260 days. So two perspectives on the same group of people. A holy city will be trampled, but they will also be the two witnesses who will prophesy. And that raises the question, like, who are these two witnesses? Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when I was a teenager, I really enjoyed reading the Left Behind series. I'm not sure if any of you have heard about it before. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a fairly popular series in, in the US and I guess in Singapore as well. And it's a dramatized 21st century take on the book of Revelation. So the demon locusts in chapter 9 last week, um, they were helicopters. Uh, the lions with sulfur coming out of their mouths, they were mech warriors in the book. And the two witnesses uh, were two individuals to come in the future. Uh, and in the book, they were called Moshi and Eli. Uh, I guess referring to Moses and Elijah. And I suppose there's some truth in what they're saying. Um, notice the two witnesses have the power to shut the sky and that no rain may fall and that fire will come out of them. And that's very much like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, as he he spoke against King Ahab. But notice also they have the power in verse 6 to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And that's very much like Moses in the Exodus. So in one sense, they're very similar to Moses and Elijah. But it cannot be the reincarnation of those two individuals. Because John, he tells us who they are. Uh, Remember, look at verse 4. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands before the Lord. And very early on in his book, chapter 1, verse 20, John tells us that the lampstands, well, they are the churches. Jesus, he walks amongst his lampstands, the church. And so these two witnesses, they refer to the church. Well, then you might ask, why two? Why two witnesses? In the Old Testament, a prosecution case 
is only valid on the account of two witnesses. I put the code there for you. It's Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And so the two witnesses, well, it refers to the churches in its prosecution against the unbelieving world. And the fact that the, the church is described like Moses and Elijah, I think it's saying this, that it's in its witness, it's speaking, it's communication of the truth. It has the same prophetic force of these great Old Testament prophets. Uh, it's like fire coming out of our mouths as we speak about Jesus, as you tell the truth about the lamb who was slain. Um, that has the same power as Moses and Elijah. So what is our duty? Um, how does the army fight? Well, firstly, it is to witness. And it's worth clarifying uh, a point, this point that speaking actually matters. Um, some of you might have heard this phrase. Uh, someone saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. And that is not right. Uh, the duty is to witness, to speak. Um, words is necessary. And so I've been thinking about that this week. It's not just my actions, while actions are hugely important. It's not just inviting people to an evangelistic event. Um, I personally need to be speaking about Jesus. And I guess this makes sense about why the judgment is not enough. It's only as we speak truths and we help people to understand what is wrong with this world, why this world is broken and why this world uh, where hope can be found. And it's only with the speaking of these truths can they make sense of it. So do you see, firstly, our duty is to witness. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, not only are we to witness, we are to witness unto death. And that's where we are in our second point, to witness unto death. I look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, well, don't worry about the beast, we'll come back to the beast next week, but well, the beast will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because those two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Well, you see, in verse two, we read that the, the two witnesses, they will be trampled. But in verse seven here, we read that it leads to death. And it's not a pleasant death. Now, these two witnesses, they have refused a burial. Uh, people, they, they rejoice and they exchange presents. Not because it's Christmas, but because it's dead prophet day. And the reason why they hate them is because they hate their witnessing. Verse 10 is described like torment or like torture. It grates at their skin. It exposes their darkness. And so they rejoice at the death of these two witnesses. And they suffer a horrible death. At the same time, even as they die, uh, the kind of death they die, well, it's a unique kind of death. They die like Jesus, where their Lord was crucified, like the lamb as though slain. Look again to verse 11. 
But after the three and a half days of breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And when they went up to heaven in the cloud, their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. See, these two witnesses, they witness like Jesus, but they also die like Jesus. It's after a similar time, roughly about three days, they are raised like him. Uh, They don't die without hope. They are secure, they are sealed, they are protected, they are measured out, and ultimately, they are vindicated. And so this helps us to see what is their duty and how the army fights. It is to witness unto death. Well, of course, that raises an obvious question. Well, if the two witnesses are the church, does that mean that all Christians will die? And in one sense, uh, yes, many do die. Uh, Many brothers and sisters, I'm sure many of you know, in various countries, Iran, North Korea, Libya, Somalia, they do die for their faith. A friend of mine who is living up in northern Nigeria um, sent me videos the other day that was posted on TikTok of Islamic Fulani herdsmen killing people for their faith. Uh, Even chapter 2, we read about Antipas from the church of Pergamum uh, who died. But not all of us do die, um, that's clear from history, and also from the book of Revelation. Uh, There were churches like Ephesus who were in relative security. Uh, They were not under physical persecution. But yet John still writes Revelation 11 to those churches. Uh, So why? Well, I think Revelation 11 is, well, it's a bit like a parable. It puts things in black and white to dramatize what's going on. And so the point is to to force us to consider whether we are willing uh, to witness, to testify, to suffer, and to die. So it's true that not everyone will die for their faith. But at the very least, Revelation 11 is asking us, are you willing? You see, this is not unique to John's words in Revelation. Uh, Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 8, whoever comes after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross to die, and follow me. You see the point. Our duty is to witness unto death. Well, but look at the outcome in verse 13. In that hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Notice only 7,000 were killed. Uh, the rest of the world gave glory to God. Uh, it's a huge number of people, a great multitude. You see, in chapter 9, the judgment on the world did no good. People did not repent. But when the church witnesses unto death, the success and the nations turn to the God of heaven. And so this gives us the strategy to win over the nations to win over your workplaces. It is as Christians witness unto death. Uh, I want us to notice how subversive this is. Um, Well, this really reinterprets the concept of war from the Old Testament. 
Some of you might be familiar that God showed himself through his historic people, Israel, by delivering them through great miracles in the Exodus. But how effective was it? See, Israel failed as a nation, and the nations did not repent. But the New Testament, Revelation 11, it reveals a new way. God will allow his own to be trampled, because dying is the strategy to win the nations. Because dying for others is the pattern set out by his son. See, this gives us some insight into the conflict that's happening right now in, in, between Israel and Palestine. I was watching some videos online and I saw an online comment saying, well, Israel will definitely win the victory because God will fight for them. Well, whether they will win or not, I do not know. Whether God will fight for them or not, I do not know. But what I'm clear from Revelation 11 is this, that the true people of God will win the nations over, not by killing, but by dying. And so this helps us to understand the strategy to, to win people around us. So that well-meaning relative of mine, that uncle of mine, said, be like the world, but be better, uh, better at it to draw people in. See, he was wrong. See, the strategy to win the nations is to be trembled to be crushed a victory is more like reducing your work days to create time to speak to other people it's more like refusing a promotion to keep current relationships going with your team it looks like suffering ridicule from your boss and yet keep speaking see victory looks like the cross and the land as though slain see victory looks like being totally unlike the world but at the same time Keep speaking and witnessing. So what is God's strategy to, to win the nations, your workplaces? And what is our duty? Well, it is to witness unto death. Well, this is why the end of the world is put on hold. Uh, this is why the seventh seal wasn't sounded, the seventh trumpet wasn't blown, because now is the time to witness unto death. Well, as we finish off, I, I hope you've been challenged by today's passage because as I was preparing this passage, I was really challenged. I was thinking and reflecting on my own self that I, I really love comfort. Um, I, I really love being, being liked by others. And often I'm, I'm caught up with my own small issues and many distractions in, in my life. But this was such a timely reminder that my duty um, is to be willing to witness unto death. At the same time, I also really encouraged that this is no different from the path that Jesus took, that we follow in his footsteps. And also that John is really confident that only 7,000 people die and the rest of the world gave glory to God. And so what a glorious thought that through our suffering, our suffering witness, we can cause an unbelieving world to turn to God. Well, that's the content of the scroll, Revelation 11. If you like, it's the summary of the content of the scroll. And the rest of the book of Revelation goes on to review more. And next week, chapter 12, we reach the turning point of the book. We see in greater detail the war. We understand the enemy. We understand how he fights, his strategy, and his tactics. But for that, um, yeah, you need to come back next week. Okay, why don't I, I pray for us and then we will have a bit of time for Q&A.
uh, Revelation 12, verse 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. But I pray that you might forgive us for times where we have loved our lives more than we should. We pray that we might take encouragement from your word today to be willing to testify, to witness, and also to be trampled unto death. Please, will you help us to follow in the footsteps of the Lamb who was slain? In Jesus' name, Amen.